welcome to episode 108 of the Political Mike podcast. For, for years, the Carter administration was often overshadowed by the political turbulence and crises of the era. However, in recent times, scholars, historians, and the public have begun to reassess the legacy of the nation's 39th president and the significance of his leadership during a pivotal period in American history. Jimmy Carter, a peanut farmer turned statesman, brought a unique blend of honesty, compassion, and moral clarity to the Oval Office. His presidency, spanning from 1977 to 1981, was marked by a series of challenges, both at home and abroad, from grappling with an energy crisis to navigating the complexities of the Cold War. Carter faced a multitude of formidable tests during his time in office. So why is Jimmy Carter's presidency gaining newfound appreciation and a reevaluation? What factors are driving this reassessment of his leadership and policy? To help us navigate these questions, we have two esteemed guests joining us today. First, we have Jonathan Alter, an acclaimed columnist, journalist, and Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker. His recent book, His Very Best, Jimmy Carter Life, offers a comprehensive and intimate portrait of the 39th president. We also have Mr. Les Francis, who served in the Carter administration as Deputy White House Chief of Staff, and he worked closely with the president during his term. His insights into Carter's presidency provide us with invaluable firsthand knowledge. Gentlemen, thank you for being a part of the political mic. I want to open up the floor by asking you why you think that the Carter presidency is now getting a revaluation. Of course, presidents go through a revaluation throughout history. Harry Truman has been reevaluated in how he handled the deployment of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Lyndon B. Johnson is getting a revaluation, although you know many have characterized his presidency with the failures of the Vietnam War. But they've given him a second look based on his wide portfolio of domestic policy achievements. And what, why is Jimmy Carter's presidency now getting a reevaluation? The, uh, I think after um, a certain passage of time, and it was decades, there was a recognition on the part of um, some historians, and um, I guess I was the first one to recognize it because my, my book was out first, uh, in 2020, there was a recognition that he was badly misunderstood, that his presidency was badly misunderstood, and it was time to correct the historical record. Um, and I think the, the good news was that the reading public, both at home and abroad, was ready to hear that, um, in part because of the outstanding job Carter has done as a, a former president. And so he has taken the, uh, the stink off of his presidency through his role as a global humanitarian and a, almost a global icon. And so when um, historians came along and said, look, uh, maybe it's time to take another look at his presidency in light of the fact that he's clearly... Uh, an outstanding former president, there was more receptivity to that. Uh, and so um, our books, which uh, don't put him on Mount Rushmore, but, but you know, give him his due in a wide variety of areas where he uh, accomplished great things, um, they, they had a, a more receptive audience uh, for this, this uh, reassessment of him um, than they would have if the books had come out 20 years ago. And, and I, so I think the timing was really good for this reassessment. And I'm actually very proud of the, 
the role that I've played in it. I've had the privilege of having Mr. Alter on the political mic before to discuss in detail some of those legislative bills that got little attention because they came after the last Democratic president before Carter was Lyndon B. Johnson and his grand great society. Uh, but Mr. Francis, if you could shed some light on why the public is giving a second look at the Carter presidency. Well, I, I um, first of all, it's a, it's a delight to be with you, Michael, and, and to be with Jonathan on this uh, and on this topic. Um, it's no surprise, those of us who worked uh, for President Carter are delighted to see the reappraisal taking place. And Jonathan's book, uh, and those of uh, Kai Bird and, and Sue Eisenstadt have done a lot to make that happen, I think. Um, the, it, it, for years, people have been talking about Jimmy Carter being the best ex-president ever. And, uh, and that, I think, rankled. The president, some of us a little bit, uh, because it seemed to overlook his accomplishments in office. But I think uh, Jonathan and I and others have have discussed the fact that that people are looking at Carter's presidency to some extent through the prism of his ex presidency. Uh, that his devotion to human rights, his uh, concern for for uh, civil rights, civil liberties, uh, uh, free and fair elections, all those things, those have long been part of his character and and uh, commitments. And so the, the fact that he has focused on those things as a former president has caused people, I think, in part to look at his actual presidency and see that this has been part of, of him uh, you know, sort of forever. Uh, uh, but but I, I do think that Jonathan's book and those other books have done a lot to, to accelerate the process. Talk about his relationship with Congress. Basically. Um, what was that like? You had Scoop Jackson, who was a Democrat, who was a hawk. Uh, um, you have uh, Ted Kennedy, um, who was seemed to be a chief rival as it pertains to the issue of health care, and then ultimately who challenged him in the 1980 primary. Um, you know, how did Carter manage it? you know, Congress, um, and what lessons do you think that the Biden administration could learn from as the, the Biden administration uh, is in its own battle with Congress over the debt ceiling? Well, that's a complicated question. Uh, there are those who would say we didn't handle our relations with Congress well. I disagree with that. Uh, if you look at, and as Jonathan has chronicled in his book, the legislative accomplishments of the Carter presidency compare very favorably with uh, uh, every president. I think we had a, the best scorecard uh, since Lyndon Johnson in terms of passing presidential initiatives. But you mentioned Scoop Jackson. Remember that, that Carter and Jackson fought for the nomination in 76. So there was some tension there. Now, on the other hand, Mo Udall also could was in that 76 contest and, and Mo turned out to be a great friend and ally of uh, the president and the administration. Carter became president at exactly the time when the Democratic Party was going through a transition. Uh, the uh, weakening of uh, links, let's say, to, to the traditional constituencies and New Deal programs and whatnot. <laughs> and the tensions between Congress and the presidency 
institutional tensions uh, were increasing because of the Vietnam War, uh, the, the Nixon transgressions and whatnot, and Congress was reasserting itself as a co-equal branch of government just when we uh, came into office. And then Carter had run uh, against the establishment. He didn't have many friends uh, uh, in, in Washington generally or in Congress, so there were bound to be uh, problems. We screwed up a couple things in the early going, but if you look over the four years, I mean, we had very significant accomplishments. Uh, now, also remember, we had big Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate, which Joe Biden <laughs> does not have, uh, Barack Obama did not have, uh, both of them had divided Congresses, so it's a wholly different dynamic. And Jonathan, you could refresh my memory here and the audience. Uh, we had, I think you would have all, a government shutdown for a couple it was so, I'm going to say insignificant, that's probably the wrong word. I did not recall it until I read your history and, and the fact that that happened. Uh, but it, 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 wasn't, I, it, it wasn't over the debt ceiling, as I recall. It was more a budget battle, but maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, it was, it was a budget battle, and it was, you know, it was just, uh, it was, I can't remember the length of time, but it was, you know, if you blinked, you missed it. It was just kind of like another event that week, right. you know, and it didn't, yeah. it didn't really, uh, it was entirely forgotten about uh, within days. It was just like another, like, brief negotiating ploy. So it wasn't anywhere close to what Bill Clinton, for instance, uh, experienced in his second term, uh, you remember the the Lewinsky uh, story started uh, during a government shutdown. <clears throat> um, so it was a, in in the Carter years. It was a complete non-event. Raising the debt ceiling was a complete non-event, and they would argue over the budget. Uh, and Carter. Um, believed in moving toward a balanced budget. So he actually got quite a number of Republican votes uh, on his budget. And most of the noise was made by fellow Democrats who got very concerned when starting in 19, uh, really in 1979 and 80, he started um, uh, making some cuts, not actual cuts, but cuts in the rate of increase right. in social programs uh, because inflation was high. In some cases, their funding was not growing at the uh, level of inflation. And this made Democratic Party constituency groups very upset and they complained about it loudly and it undermined support for him and it helped Ted Kennedy, but it didn't lead to any kind of a a you know a crisis or anything of that nature um there the one thing that i would fault carter on is that he was in the grip of a um of a an outdated even then arguably outdated 
economic theory that <clears throat> um, government spending it was the cause of inflation right. and that if yeah. you move toward a balanced budget you would do something about inflation and really inflation as he you know by mid 79 when he appointed paul volcker to be chair of the fed you know he should have known by then that it's the federal reserve and its policy uh, in combination with um, global oil prices that are really the main drivers of inflation and whether you spend you know more or less on this social program really doesn't have anything to do with it yeah. i mean labor yeah. you could say labor contracts labor contracts were uh, a cause of inflation so to the extent that the government employees unions were negotiating for higher uh, wages you, you could call that a driver of inflation but he was really analyzing it um, and most of his people were analyzing it as in the aggregate like well if we cut the deficit by this much we'll we'll dampen inflation and there's just no economic you know truth to that yeah and and, and you recall the uh the 50 tax rebate that carter would early proposed and then pulled back because he, it was argued that, that it would fuel inflation. It's hard to imagine that $50 a, a taxpayer was going to fuel inflation. I mean, well, I mean, certainly at a level of $50, it's, it's impossible to imagine. But actually, that kind of thinking you did hear around the, you know, around COVID that all of the money from PPP and other income support programs in the COVID relief package, that that contributed to inflation, maybe in a significant way. So that would be a little bit comparable. If you're putting more money into people's pockets, then, um, you know, which can be done through a tax cut uh, or um, uh, during a, a pandemic um you know if you are um priming consumer spending that's going to contribute to inflation but the problem is they were just experimenting in in you know in the late 70s and early 80s so you know basically uh this has also been largely forgotten in the spring of 1980 carter asked people to you know cut up their credit cards and um and you know we had a kind of a short, very steep, very short recession because everybody patriotically, or not everybody, but large numbers of people did stop um, spending on their credit cards uh, and, you know, in the patriotic interest of doing something about inflation. But I remember, I mean, I talked to both Volcker and Carter about this. You know, I remember Volcker saying that even at the time he wasn't sure whether that was the right thing to do and really would would do much about inflation. And he was much more focused on interest rates and, a, you know, a mon what they called a monetarist solution that related to the, the money supply, which, again, is a totally out of fashion thing to do that, you know, the am amount of what's called M1, the money supply, is, is related to inflation. You don't hear that in today's discussions at all. I think people are much... You know, you know the Occam's razor uh, 
idea that you know the most obvious explanation is often the best explanation, and the most obvious thing that was was going on, you know, in that period were dramatically increased um, oil and gas prices, right. and uh, and you know, and it, and then the Iranian Revolution worsened that because all these Iranian oil fields came offline. Um, and, you know, again, like you can see um, in the last couple of years, I mean, inflation has now been cut in half in this country from what it was two years ago. And it tracks pretty closely to the decline in uh, oil prices. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and even and even when we're less dependent, other supply cha- chain interruptions and other things and wage increases, which both in in the 70s and now you know, contribute to inflation, but you can argue that's a double-edged sword because those wage increases are actually good for working people and in many cases, long overdue. But the other point related to that, John, then we'll get on to whatever Mike wants to address, that, that with the exception of the, the big oil-producing countries, inflation skyrocketed basically around the world in every country. Right, right. Which which, you know, American fiscal policy had nothing to do with, the, right. you, know, you know. And and we've had inflation in a bunch of other, I mean, that was the case both then and now. Same, yeah. same deal. Um, and but Americans are so parochial, they never look at it, you know, on a global scale. Also, the other thing, people talk about uh, Reagan you know, um, and his landslide, um, I, I took a look at the political futures of the, um, at that time, you know, G7 leaders um, and Carter, and basically they all got thrown out of office in the years after Carter. Yeah. They, yeah. All, they all got wiped out. Callahan got wiped out by by Thatcher, you know, and uh, and right around the same time, I, I think that was in 1979. And I think, you know, Thatcher was first, right? Thatcher was Thatcher the first, first yeah. Thatcher was before Carter got thrown out, but then, you know, Helmut Schmidt, who didn't get along with Carter, but he was in the Social Democratic Party. He got thrown out, you know, by the Christian Democrats, the Conservative Party, and. West Germany, and you, you could go right down the line. I mean, initially, Francois Mitterrand lost to uh, uh, an, another socialist, but it wasn't too long before they had more conservative leadership in France. And the, the, the whole world was moving to the right at that time. And I, I, there have been almost no efforts that I've seen of Carter being kind of contextualized that way. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Well, you know, it was just revealed today that President Joe Biden and top U.S. Congressional Republican, Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, uh, underscored their determination to reach a deal soon to raise the federal government's $31.4 trillion debt ceiling and avoid an economic catastrophic default. And this comes, you know, after a a months-long standoff. You have President Biden uh, and Speaker McCarthy on Tuesday, agreeing to negotiate directly on a deal 
And of course, the agreement needs to be reached and passed by both chambers of Congress before the federal government runs out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 1st. Uh, Biden said, we're going to come together because there's no alternative. Um, and of course, he cut short his trip to Asia um, and returned to Washington. And, you know, he was going to cut short his trip to Asia and return to Washington this Sunday. Um, I want to ask you about if, you know, if Carter was president instead of Biden today, how do you think he would handle Kevin McCarthy? And how do you think he would handle negotiations in light of the fact that uh, I believe it was Carter who had pretty much a contentious relationship with many members of the legislature um, and, and specifically Ted Kennedy? Uh, I think I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but if you could you know, delve into how you think the pres uh, President Carter would handle this negotiation, do you think it would be similar to how Biden has uh, handled it so far or different? Well, uh, it, it, everything is so different today. Right. The polarization, I mean, it's just, it's really hard to compare. Uh, uh, we got on the president, just to put this in context, on the presidential priorities across the board, policy priorities that, that were considered by Congress, we averaged 40% support from House Republicans. That, that today would be zero. Uh, just the polarization is so much worse uh, that it's almost, it, it's really, it's not apples and or oranges, it's apples and aardvarks. I mean, it's just so different. Uh, uh, one, one thing that also is different is the Republican leadership at the time we were in office, Howard Baker in the Senate, uh, John Rhodes, and, and uh, I guess Bob Michael came in later, but Rhodes was the uh, Republican leader in the House. And they were, they were mainstream, old-fashioned conservatives. They weren't right-wing extremists, and they didn't have Donald Trump looking over their shoulder. They were serious legislators. Nobody will ever make that accusation about Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he is not a serious legislator. Uh, he's a transactional figure. He always has been. People who knew him in Sacramento had little regard for him. Uh, uh, so that's the difference. The other thing is then and now and perhaps in between, presidents don't get often don't get involved in the specific negotiations. Jonathan writes the wonderful anecdote of an exception to that when in the uh, lame duck session in 1980, where Carter got down on his hands and knees over a map with Ted Stevens and negotiated the final details of the Alaska land uh, bill. But typically the negotiations take place between staffs uh, before they get to the principles and, and, and then when they really needed, they get involved and, and Carter did on one-on-ones with key, uh, chairs of the committees. Uh, but for example, the national energy act, uh, uh, there was a super committee that was set up and the negotiations over the details were done by Jim Schlesinger and, uh, Al Alm and other staff people in the White House, and and uh, and then you know Carter was kept apprised of it and gave guidance and direction, but and and met with some individual members, but I don't think 
it, it's accurate to say that in most cases he negotiated uh, the details, uh, and I don't think other presidents have. I don't, Jonathan, you you've studied presidential history more than I have. I don't know. I, well, I could be different. Well, what happened was, I mean, first of all, what you said about I love the apples and aardvarks. I mean, that is so right. Just the system is so different. Uh, the only thing I would agree with that you said is about Kevin McCarthy. Um, so he is, as you say, he's a transactional politician. Well, the, most politicians are transactional. The difference is the environment that he's operating in, where you know he only became speaker by making promises to people who are... Um, you know, on the clown car, and it's the clown car that just came in from crazy town. I mean, these are yeah. people who are way over on the fringes of American politics, and yeah. it's a little bit like um, some of the power wielded by some of the far right-wing religious parties in, in Israel right now, where, you know, people who are way out of the mainstream have a lot of power because they are the deciding vote. So they have Kevin McCarthy over a barrel and he has very, very little room to maneuver. And that's why I'm, I'm still very worried about uh, the debt ceiling debate. I think if Kevin McCarthy had been in Congress and had been in the leadership in the 1970s, that he would have been somebody you could have done business with because he was transactional. I mean, I remember, you know, it's funny you remember certain things. Uh, the longest conversation I ever had with him was uh, when um, uh, the uh, uh, it was at the exact moment that um, we were you know, the seals were killing Osama bin Laden. Learned later, this was on the day after the White House correspondence dinner that Obama had famously gone to, and um, there was a party, you know. A, brunch the next morning and uh, I later saw in the timeline that it was exactly when I was having my like 45 minute conversation with McCarthy that they were they're nailing bin Laden and um, he was hugely affable very in his outlook uh, I didn't think he was the sharpest knife in the drawer but you know, he seemed um, a perfectly uh, reasonable um, conservative Republican, but he's he's just been wrenched to this new place, and he flunked, you know, the great character test of his generation, which every Republican who stuck with Trump, you know, flunked. And when he went after um, the... Uh, Sixth insurrection and paid him a visit and rescued Trump. Um, that was a despicable, unpatriotic act to rescue uh, a man who had in, incited a, an insurrection against the United States, against him. And uh, every Republican made their choice. And they, um, you know, Liz Cheney made the right choice. There's nothing to do with how conservative they are on other issues. It's just a straight up character test whether they put their party in front of their country and their constitution. And so, you know, I think that this is a long-winded way of saying that I think that um, Carter 
probably would have taken his measure at a certain point and recognized that he wasn't dealing with a person of good character. And character right. is very, very important to Jimmy Carter. So I think ultimately, I think Kevin McCarthy is the kind of guy that he might have gotten along with initially, but when he realized what he was really made of, uh, he would have wanted to have little or nothing to do with him. The other thing, just to the more structural argument you were making, is that you know we used to, in Washington, have conference committees between the House and the Senate that would work out legislation. They were very powerful, and they you know, resolve the differences between the House and Senate versions of bills. And we did not have uh, these, um, we didn't have, you know, budget committees, and we certainly didn't have the um, entire federal budget being determined, uh, you know, by just like three or four people in a, in a room. That's just not, not the way it worked. I mean, you had very powerful committees and they would determine big chunks of the budget, whether it was armed services or appropriations or whatever, but not not just the president and the and the leadership. So we've we've you know slowly but surely developed this very high stakes and arguably um, you know autocratic system. If you, if you believe that. It's not very interesting being a congressman anymore because you don't really get a, a chance to legislate in any significant way. It's all done at the end of the session or when there's a debt ceiling crisis by what they call the principles. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That 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 is a new and and unfortunate development because uh, it's all now everything, and this has been true of both sides. Everything is being decided in the the offices of the leadership, not 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 the substantive uh, knowledgeable committee people uh you talk about the deals that uh, that mccarthy had to cut to get his 218 votes i refer to him as kevin mccastrated uh, <laughs> uh he gave up his personhood to to get those votes and and uh, the uh the other thing is that that the knowledgeable, you mentioned the committees and conference committees, there, the, the Congress was populated by, by members who were respected for what they knew, right? They were substantive people, not all of them. I mean, there are some doofuses. Uh, try to do that with today's Congress. I mean, there are a few, right? But nothing like uh in those days so you went to people the other thing is if you, if you see over my shoulder there's a one of the things hanging on the wall is a the red line uh, copy of the civil service reform bill uh that uh, we got passed 1978 and i was the uh scotty campbell who was then the head of the civil service commission and he and i co-chaired the white house task force to get that through carter knew everything about that bill was going through because we were briefing him and whatnot. And we were having trouble in the House, not from Republicans, but from uh, Democrats who were close to the federal uh, employee unions. And Mo Udall, the once rival for the nomination, said, 
let me handle this. Let me be your lead in the house and let me just do what I need to do. And I, I, I promise I won't sell you out. I'll stick with it, but let me just handle it. And we told the president and the president said, fine. And that's what, that's what Mo did. Now, at one point, in order to get it out of the post office and civil service committee, we weren't going to get enough democratic votes. We needed Republican votes. And we invited the Republican members down to the White House to meet with the president, members of the committee. And he, he made the case for his bill. Uh, and one of the members of the committee uh, was John Russolo from Southern California, who was a literally a member and, and staffer for the John Birch Society. I mean, John Russolo was as right wing as they got in those days. But that played be a moderate, but <laughs> yeah, now he'd be, yeah, he'd be a member of the, uh, but he, he helped us get it out of committee. He supported us after that meeting. That, that would not happen today. It just wouldn't happen. Uh, first of all, there'd no, be no I mean, meeting like about all the deep. They talk about the deep state, and I mean, you have a uh, guy running for president now, Vivek Ramaswamy, who wants to um, uh, totally politicize the civil service, and I think he speaks for other Republicans. Make a mandatory retirement from the civil service after eight years in the government. Uh, you know. They're just, they, they don't believe in government. They don't want it to work better. They want to destroy it. Exactly. And, uh, and so, yeah, you'd never get um, at civil service reform. But I, I think the other thing, you know, when you talked about Jimmy Carter having a, a session with them, I mean, one of the things that I learned about him was that even though he, he could have, stood for improvement in his relationships, his personal relationships with members of Congress, because like Barack Obama, but even more so, he was missing the schmooze gene. He didn't really like to mix it up, you know, in a friendly way with members of Congress. And I looked at some of the call logs when he'd call them to lobby for legislation. The calls would last like a minute and 30 seconds. You know, there were, there were no pleasantries. And none of what Biden does very well, you know, in, in trying to deal with them as human beings who you can really respect. And you guys in, in, in your office would try to get him to do it, do these things, like get him to I remember one time you got him to play tennis with some members of Congress. And then he didn't invite them back to the White House from the White House tennis court for a lemonade or any refreshments. And. And, you know, you asked the president why, and he said, well, you told me to play tennis with them. So that's all I did. You know? Exactly. You know? yeah. and like, so he wasn't very good at that. But what he was really good at was he's, he's such a uh, brilliant man that he often knew more about the bills than the legislators themselves did. So when they tried, whether it was Ted Stevens on the Alaska lands bill or you know, people on the civil service bill, didn't matter what bill it was, when they would try to say, well, how about if we did this and, and that, you know, which would in effect gut the bill. And another president might go, oh, okay. You know, Carter knew enough to know, uh, uh, to protect the integrity of the legislation. And 
And, you know, they would often confess that he knew more about it than they did. That wasn't always a good thing because it sometimes made them feel small or like the president was was making them look bad by showing off how knowledgeable he was about the bill. And so it wasn't always a positive, but I think, and you would know better than, than I do on this list, I think on balance, it was a positive in, in terms of getting the bills through his, his level of knowledge. Yeah. Well, I, I just, let me just tell you one anecdote. I don't know. I don't think I shared this with you before, but uh, Lionel Van Dierlen was a Democratic member of Congress of San Diego. Good guy, wonderful guy, respected member of Congress. And uh, we had a meeting of the California delegation with Carter uh, maybe sometime in 78. I don't remember exactly when. And because one of my assignments was to keep track of California politics and the delegation and whatnot. And uh, so I was asked to write the briefing paper for the meeting, which I did, and uh, covered the issues that were going on in California and blah, blah. And, and uh, there was a Q&A session, and, and I was sitting next to Van Deerland, who I knew and who was a friend. And uh, he stands up, he says, Mr. President, I'm paraphrasing now, but he said, uh, an issue of great concern is uh, the uh, regulations being proposed by NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmosphere Administration, or whatever it's called, that affects the tuna fishing and the restriction on certain kinds of nets. And I sort of like this and thought, oh man, I didn't even cover that in the briefing memo. It wasn't in there. Carter proceeds to answer the question about the different kinds of tuna and the different kinds of nets and all this stuff. And Van sits down next to me and leans over. He says, I'll be damned. He knows more about the issue than I do. And it's in my district. And now, you know, how, how he knew about that, maybe somebody domestic, I don't know, but it's an example of, and, and Van wasn't embarrassed by it. He just was really impressed. That, uh, Carter oh, Carter, Carter's like that on so many issues. His, 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 the breadth of his knowledge is extraordinary. It's, um, yeah. you know, one of the things that makes him into a Renaissance man. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a word that was used a lot in the 20th century, especially the earlier part of the 20th century. A very simple four-letter word um, that you don't hear very much anymore, and the word is able. It's a very high uh, compliment to say somebody's a very able person. They can get stuff done. They know how to um, make things happen. And one of the sort of unfortunate things about the Carter presidency is that he was seen as incompetent when actually he's one of the most competent people generally that I think anybody who's ever met him has ever met, <laughs> you know, it's like you, yeah. you get to know this guy. This guy is immensely competent person in many, many different ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, we're, we're having some uh, renovations done on our house by some really able carpenters. And uh, as a gift, my wife and I are going to give them, 
the coffee table book of Jimmy Carter's woodworking because he, he built yeah. every piece of furniture in, in his house and in the cabin he has in the woods. And these are beautiful pieces of furniture. The carpentry is not, you know, okay. It's really good. He's really good at it. And, um, you know, anyway, we're going to give our, our workmen this book. That's a great book. Uh, and and but it's just an example of many things now not everything you know when he tried his hand at a, as a novelist that didn't work so well it's not a page turner but um an awful lot of what he he attempts to do he uh succeeds and i think in the case of the fishing nets you know he probably read an article about tuna fishing like 25 years earlier and remembered it <laughs> And I, you know, when I was looking at his files, I, uh, I saw from time he's governor in 1970, 71, he's reading the journal Nature. So other politicians are out playing golf and he quit golf because he thought it was too time consuming, even though he wasn't bad at it. And he's reading the journal Nature and he's, he's underlining this article and it's about what was then called carbon pollution or global warming. And, you know, it was just something that was being discussed in the scientific community. And Jimmy Carter was was learning about it. And then at the end of his presidency, this Council on Environmental Quality issued a report uh, recommending um, uh, carbon emission standards that were identical to what were adopted in 2015, uh, 35 years later at the Paris Climate Accords. Imagine, imagine what how things might be today climate-wise if uh, if Carter had been elected to a second term, because that would have been definitely an agenda item, right? Yeah. I mean, almost certainly. Uh, so he wanted electric cars. He wanted electric cars by the end of his second term. I don't think the technology would have allowed it, but what it would have begun was the process of right. moving toward you know the public conversation that is necessary to do this and if you had leadership from the top that said that uh, um, electric cars were important and and put pressure on the industry to move toward them in the same way that you know the pressure moved toward fuel economy standards which were adopted in the carter administration which we now just take for granted one of many unheralded carter accomplishments you know, the, the industry was very resistant to that early on, too. And now we just take it for granted that they have fuel economy standards. And and so I think that he would have made a lot of progress on that. Uh, we know that he put solar panels on the roof of the White House and did the first uh, uh, direct funding for clean uh, energy. There would have been more of that in his second term budgets. There would have also, you know, in in fairness, been a lot more money for coal, which is not yeah. good for the climate. But because his first priority was energy independence, and we were so dependent exactly. on Arab oil. So he would have done a lot to bolster the coal industry, but also alternative, alternative sources. And I think um, he would have had the... Um, credibility uh, because he, he was a nuclear engineer 
to calm the concerns of the anti-nuclear folks and get yeah. us back to uh, building nuclear power plants. I mean, I think they still haven't, all these years after 1978 Three Mile Island accident, they still haven't built a new one since in the United States, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Right. I think that's right. And the other thing that uh, in that same vein, Jonathan, is uh, in the, I think it was in the first of the three national energy bills, was establishing efficiency standards for appliances. I, yeah. I mean, uh, that it turned it's a it seems like a little deal but it's a big deal both substantively and symbolically uh, and and uh, Carter was way ahead of his time right. on, on I think the the point that you made earlier about he, he he was not good at schmoozing except you know maybe when asked to or he wanted to that just and and related to that, and that wasn't me. It wasn't that he was a bad guy at all. I mean, he was a wonderful human being. It was just uh, now he was superb at it as a candidate, right? I mean, in '76, he was remarkable at that as a small right. groups and went on. But but he he divorced in his own mind, I think, uh, politics from governing, uh, and and. I, I think that was, you know, and as we've talked, and you know, the staff quickly learned that the the worst thing you could do in trying to convince Carter to do A over B was to make the political case for it. I mean, that just was a non-starter, uh, and 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 he did that because he thought, probably rightly so, that that's what the voters said they wanted in 1976, right? Somebody who would not political you know, do the job, be honest, right? After what we've gone through with Nixon and so forth. And the American public to this day tries to separate politics from governing without realizing that governing in a democracy is by definition a political process. Right? I mean, right. and, and yeah, that, Biden, that, I mean, that's I, a Yeah. I mean, to his point, he knows that. Uh, yeah, and it's just about the balance between the two. And I think Carter got the balance wrong. He thought he didn't understand why other people couldn't see what the right thing to do was. And as he said, I'm not a politician. And he, in some ways, he really wasn't. He was great. Uh, he was a great politician in elections, even in 1980. You know, he he had his moments as a politician. But he thought that you could divorce it from governing, and you can't. You, you never can. And certainly Franklin Roosevelt didn't believe you divorced politics from governing. Yeah. It was, a, it was a, uh, a kind of a, you know, he always talked about the sin of pride. It was almost like a prideful thing on his part. I should have put it that way in the book. I, I sort of did. You know, to think that you could divorce the two in that in yeah. that fashion. But I don't think, I mean, you know, I went into this project and I think a lot of people still believe that the consequences of that were that there were all of these bills they didn't get because he couldn't have a, you know, didn't have a beer with Tip O'Neill the way Reagan did. But he actually got much more through the Congress than Reagan did. Much more. 
and and so the the uh, the you know use the economist term the opportunity costs of his standoffishness not that high. I mean, I guess the question I would have for you, Les, is there were three big things that he did not get done on Capitol Hill. Tax reform, welfare reform, and health care reform. Those are big items. And, you know, he he mismanaged all three of them to a greater or lesser degree. Um, on the tax bill, he did what we were talking about before. He became an expert on the tax code, which really didn't help. And he cut out the chairs of the key committees on Capitol Hill until way too late in the process. And they said later on, well, maybe if he'd let us in on the takeoff instead of the landing, we would have had a bill. But part of me thinks, no, they just would have had a lobbyist bill loaded up with special interest favors earlier in the process, you know, and that it really wouldn't have made a difference if Carter had been a big schmoozer and that it wouldn't have made a difference on welfare reform either if Carter had been a big schmoozer. The one that I think it would have made a difference on and that I blame Carter for is he did not manage his relationship with Ted Kennedy properly. And there's enough blame to go around for that because Kennedy did have an opportunity to support Carter's very good bill, which had the support of all of the various uh, stakeholders in healthcare. It had the support of Congressman Comer uh, uh, on the, uh, uh, um, sorry, uh, uh, what was it, Kennedy? Was it, what was the guy's name? Um, the, the House sponsor, Corman, James Corman. Yeah. So the big Kennedy bill for years was Kent was Kennedy Corman and the Carter bill at the end, it had Corman support. So this idea that it wasn't liberal enough, it had the support of, of Kennedy's liberal counterpart in the House, Congressman yeah. Corman. And out of out of his own petty, prideful reasons, Ted Kennedy wouldn't support it because Carter was late. Carter was, you know, had blindsided him, whatever his complaints were. So I do think that that's a tragic one, that if Kennedy and Carter had gotten along better, we could have gotten a bill in 1979 or 1980 instead of having to wait for Obamacare in 2010. That's a long, long time when a lot of people had to sell their homes to pay for yeah. medical expenses. Well, I think uh, I, I, I don't disagree with you at all, Jonathan. That uh, all three of those issues that you're talking about ha had to go through the very same committees on both sides of the Capitol, Ways and Means in the House uh, and Senate Finance. Now, Senate the, uh, Labor Education Labor Committee that, that Kennedy chaired was a player and uh, the health. He didn't actually, let, he didn't actually chair the committee. This was one of the things I learned. He wasn't even chair of the committee yet. He was a member of the committee, but because of his stature in the Democratic Party, oh, he, uh, he was, was seen as chairman. And, but he didn't even, I mean, he didn't even have the votes that Carter wrote about in his diary. Like, why am I taking all this crap from Ted Kennedy about not getting it done when 
his version, which interestingly was not single payer, because even Ted Kennedy knew that single payer was a non-starter right. in American politics. But his more liberal bill, Carter wrote in his diary, like, why am I taking all this crap? He can't even get it through his own committee, which he wasn't even the chair of at the time. Well, the, other you know, is, the other thing is Russell Long made it clear that it wasn't going to come out of the finance committee either, no matter what Kennedy said. It was, you know, uh, so you had Russell Long on Senate finance and you had uh, Al Lohman, who was the chair of Ways and Means, who was nothing like Wilbur Mills before him in terms of being a, uh, you know, a legislative powerhouse. Then with tax reform, yeah. the, lead, the lead on that for the administration was Mike Blumenthal, the Secretary of the Treasury, who was, I mean, if Carter was bad at schmoozing, uh, Mike Blumenthal didn't yeah, even know yeah. what the term meant, right? Uh, uh, and uh, the, on the health care thing, and this shows you that... Uh, any of us can be cynical at times. Um, in 79, one of the two arguments I ever had with my friend and boss, Hamilton Jordan, was on this topic. And I think I told you about this. And that was in, in summer of 79. I argued that we should embrace Kennedy's bill. And, and, and you got to remember, there were lots of substantive arguments against it, budgetary arguments, policy arguments, whatnot, that were being made within the administration. My argument was strictly political, and that was, let's embrace Kennedy's bill. That will take away his rationale for running against us, uh, because he hadn't yet announced. This was the summer of 79. And I said, it's not going to pass anyway. <laughs> Right. So why why didn't why wouldn't Carter do that? Well, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, my argument was with, was with Hamilton, and we were we, this was a pre-campaign meeting. It was out on the Eastern Shore at Nate Landau's house, right? And it was the senior campaign people and White House people, and I at that time, I had moved over to Hamilton's shop from congressional liaison, and my primary assignment from Hamilton was to be the sort of the White House link to the campaign, right? To get things moving and getting the administration ready for a tough re-election fight, which we assumed at that time would include a primary fight from Kennedy. And, and so the question was, how do you, in my mind, the question was, how do we keep Kennedy out of the race so that we don't have that problem? And, and my theory was that, maybe BS, but my theory was if we were to embrace his bill, as I say, it would take away his rationale for running against us because that was the thing that motivated Kennedy, right? Was, right. And, and Hamilton argued, you know, I mean, it was a friendly argument, but it was a vigorous argument uh, the other way. Now, Hamilton's not around now to... Well, what Hamilton... Hamilton's Hamilton, view... Hamilton, Hamilton, it turns out, Hamilton wanted Carter to be challenged by Kennedy. Right. So I'm told. I never had this conversation with Hamilton. But on the theory that we would 
in the famous phrase, beat his ass or whip his ass, right? And therefore Carter would be uh, seen as a strong leader, right? If you could knock off the lion of the democratic liberal left, uh, it would it would enhance Carter's reputation, right? Being tough and so forth. He That's felt great... the same way in 1976 too. He wanted Kennedy to run then when he decided when Kennedy yeah. didn't. He he believed yeah. in that giant killer theory, but he later admitted that he was wrong and that Kennedy had really weakened Carter instead of strengthened him. Uh, let, oh, let me yeah. ask a question about 1976. Um, that was a year where Jimmy Carter ended up securing the endorsement of Martin Luther King's father. Uh, Martin Luther King, of course, uh, wrote the letter of the Birmingham jail in which he wrote a scathing uh, critique of, you know, the white moderate. Um, how did Carter manage to get that endorsement? Um, you know, the father of a man who was against this kind of, you know, timid walking down the, the middle of the road as it, as it pertains to uh, social issues in the context of race relations in the United States. Um, and I, I think, you know, Mr. Alter and I spoke about in, in better detail in the episode in which I had the privilege of having him on. Uh, we, we talked about the progression of, you know, his background uh, as it pertains to race relations and how he became the governor of Georgia. And he said, you know, the, the time for discrimination is over, which shocked a lot of folks. And, and, uh, you know, left some Democrat or Dixiecrats feeling betrayed. Uh, anyone can jump in. Uh, Jonathan, so that, that was in that period. So what happened? Yeah, what what happened, Mike, is that Carter ran to the right in that campaign in 1970 for governor, and uh, Daddy King endorsed his opponent. Carter had never met. MLK, uh, and he was ducking the civil rights movement. He was exactly the kind of um, King in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail condemned. He was exactly that guy. But then he changed in 1971. So from moments after he takes the oath as governor, he says the time for racial discrimination is over. And then it wasn't just words. He integrates Georgia state government. He, invent, he invites Daddy King and Coretta Scott King to the unveiling of MLK's portrait in the state capitol. And when he was advised, well, why don't you just put his portrait in your office? He goes, no, it's going in the capitol. And the KKK is protesting outside. And Daddy King is weeping because, you know, he's lived in Atlanta for his whole life. He's been a prominent member of the community there, and he'd never been to the governor's office until then. And that wasn't the only time that Carter had him to the governor's office. And he became a very uh, close ally and and really a friend to, to uh, Carter, um, who um, during the campaign when Carter made a gaffe you know, he talked about the ethnic purity of neighborhoods and everybody jumped on him in the press. And Daddy King led the defense of Jimmy Carter because he said that he had come to know him and and knew what was in his heart and knew that he wasn't a uh, uh, a bigot or um, and, it, you know, had done great things in appointing 
African Americans to the uh, bench in Georgia and would do the same thing uh, as president. And then at the convention that year in New York, he delivered the benediction as the convention ended. And I remember I was on the floor of the convention as a, you know, as a college student and saw that. And it was a really emotional moment as, as Daddy King brought, um, basically brought the whole Democratic Party and much of the country together in an extremely moving moment where he essentially connected his son to Jimmy Carter. And yeah. um, so it was very sincere on uh, Daddy King's uh, part. And um, the relationship with the King family continued. And so as recently as 2018 or 19, when Dr. King's children were squabbling over what would happen all these years after the assassination to some of his prized possessions, whether they should go to museum or maintain, you know, maintain, stay in the personal uh, um, part of the estate. Um, they all decided to bring in Jimmy Carter to mediate among the siblings, and he did. He worked out, he worked out a deal, and we haven't heard anything about the squabbling since. And, and in that same vein. Uh, can I just add a point, Mike? Can I just add a point? Uh, I mean, John's is entirely correct. I, I would add two things. One is the role of Andy Young. Yeah. And, and Important. Very key ally of Dr. King's in the, in the movement, but who knew Carter and trusted Carter uh, uh, and, and really went to bat for us in, in 76. The other thing is in politics, you're sometimes blessed by the quality and character of your opponents. And in Carter's case, his the, the person who attacked him most often and vigorously was the arch segregationist Lester Maddox. So if Maddox was attacking Carter, it was bound to generate some sympathy uh, in the African-American community and the leadership because there was nobody worse than Lester Maddox. You know, I, I think, I mean, Maddox attacked a lot of people. I think it was more that he appointed um, uh, African-Americans to significant positions. Oh, yeah, I agree. No, just, they, had never been, they had never been close to before. I mean, that you know, uh, there were, uh, you know, he he had senior staff who were black just a few years after there were, you know, whites only water fountains in the state capitol, you know, and and and, uh, you know, many black judges and just one minor example, um, they used to hold a lot of events at country clubs in um in Georgia, uh, and it, it sounds strange, but a lot of events were, were held there. I think to this day, there are more than one might imagine. In, in the line, and, um, when the governor was, yeah, I was just going to finish the story quickly. When Governor Carter was invited to one of these, and um, they said, you know, there were no black people allowed into these clubs, and his driver, um, and the state trooper who drove him around was black by his, you know, at his insistence, because he integrated the 
state troopers. And uh, he said, he sent word once, if if this gentleman doesn't come in with me and have lunch, you know, at, at this luncheon with me inside the club, I'm not coming. The governor's not coming. And he, he did that on several occasions. And he basically integrated, uh, you know, not in terms of membership, but in terms of being allowed to cross the threshold, you know, uh, a number of institutions in Georgia. In alignment with the question pertaining to the, the, the intolerance for, quote unquote, the white moderate, uh, as, you know, was illustrated in Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, uh, there, there seems to be a, a disconnect between uh, younger generations, Gen Z, uh, millennials, and those in an older generation, uh, the, the, the those in the generation of Congressman Jim Clyburn, Nancy Pelosi, um, Steny Hoyer, um, you know, as it pertains to approaches to get items on the legislative agenda accomplished. Uh, who do you think is more correct or more in tone with how things should work on Washington? Should should we take an all or nothing approach or a um, more of an ideological purist uh, approach to accomplishing some of the uh, agendas uh, of the party, or should there be more of a compromise? You know, the, even though Biden has had a you know very stellar legislative record, there are those who argue that that's still a small percentage of his agenda. When you look at his 2020 platform, um, who is close? Who is more in tune with? the way things should work in Washington, in your view. You want to take that down? Or you yeah, to... I mean, I, I just say that Clyburn, uh, look, I mean, it, you want people to initially stand up for the platform or for a very, you know, if, if they're progressives, they should stand up for their ideas. But then they have to re recognize that we don't live in a time when you can wave a magic wand and get what you want, that politics is the art of the possible. And as Barack Obama liked to say, uh, you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. And so the people who say, well, he didn't get what he said he was gonna do. Joe Biden said he was gonna do this or Jimmy Carter said he was gonna do this. He didn't get it. He only got a half a loaf or a quarter of a loaf. Well it's better than no loaf. And it's actually, you know, um, it's, it's a, uh, to me, it's not really a very close call. I, I, the truth is I don't have very much regard for the political um, uh, sophistication, I guess you could say, of people who don't understand the way politics and life really work. And so, um, but I actually think there've been some real signs of uh, maturity and improvement inside the Democratic Party this year. So I, I think that, I, I think that uh, Joe Biden is too old to run for president. I don't favor him running, but the only thing that I object to more than Biden running is somebody challenging Biden from within the Democratic Party uh, because, you know, we saw what happened when Kennedy did that to Carter and it's just basically a recipe for Trump coming back into power. And what has really impressed me is that everybody, no matter how progressive they are, it doesn't matter whether it's AOC or 
anybody else. But everybody gets this now. You know, that sure, we're a little disappointed in Biden. We didn't get everything we thought we should, but he's a hell of a lot better than the alternative. And we should be grateful to some extent, even though not satisfied, but we should be grateful that we got anything because there was there were a period of months there where it looked like we might get nothing and that Biden would be a total failure. So we should we should appreciate that we got a, a you know three really large and important pieces of legislation under under Biden um, that will do a lot for job creation and a lot for the environment and a lot of good stuff. And then, you know, if he gets reelected, then we can come back and try to get the other things like uh, the one that is very important to me and a lot of other people is the child uh, credit, which, uh, you know, when it was in force, uh, cut the child poverty rate in half. And it's it's shameful that that was discontinued. But I don't blame Biden for that. You know, it, it, we've got these Republicans who um, don't want to cut poverty in half. And but this is something that we can come back and work on, uh, um, you know, in 2025 if things go well. So, you know, um, this is this is the question that you asked is really one of political maturity in the way one analyzes these things. Yeah, I, I would recommend also uh, John Lawrence, uh, the Nancy Pelosi's chief of staff during her first speakership, wrote a book about that speakership. And it, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is a liberal's liberal, right? And she comes from a very liberal city. I mean, uh, she's a progressive by any reasonable definition. But what she did as speaker was she managed to corral both the left and the moderates in the party and, and time after time told the left wing of the House Democrats, look, what you're asking for is going to kill any chance to make progress here. So just she basically said, shut up and get in line and, and, and show the kind of political maturity that that uh, Jonathan's talking about. I mean, I hardline ideologues on the Democratic side I, I never, almost never get their way. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the tragedy is we're seeing hardline right-wingers on the Republican side getting their way all the time. Um, but I think and, there's an assumption, less that they're not getting their way because they're not fighting hard enough or moderate politicians yeah. are not... But that's not actually what's happening. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, you can argue uh, around the margin. So there are, there should be some red lines. Like right now, you know, the Republicans want work requirements for Medicaid, yes. which to me is one of the cruelest, worst yes. ideas I've ever heard. And, and, um, you know, Biden, you know, to say, oh, if if you're sick, you got to you got to work. That's that's what they're saying. So Biden needs to draw a red line and that and, you know, that say that that's just not going to happen. But if there are work requirements for certain other welfare um, uh, programs, um, 
And the idea of those work requirements goes back to Bill Clinton and the initial welfare reform. Right. Then, you know, that's something that I wouldn't personally favor, but in, in order to get a bill through that helps people in a lot of other ways, you know, you might have to swallow that. So there are, people can have an argument about where to compromise. What they, I don't think, can have a rational argument about is whether you have to compromise. You just exactly. do. That's what a democracy is. Exactly. And, exactly. And, and, and so people who say, well, you know, he didn't fulfill his platform, they, they don't have any sense of history because the platform is aspir it's aspirational. Yeah. It's a campaign promise, yes, because, you know, it's, it's a promise of what you're going to try to do, but it's not a promise of what you will actually get done because that needs the approval of Congress, which is divided 50-50 now, basically. So, you know, and, and I mean, you can argue whether the, you know, about the filibuster, I happen to be for getting rid of it. There's a lot of things you can argue about, but, but the, you know, the idea that somebody is a sellout if they haven't gotten everything they promised is to me uh, a very, um, it's just an unsophisticated way of looking at not just politics, but, but human relations. I mean, you know, a husband and a wife, neither one of them gets everything they want either. It's in the nature of things. So I'll be remiss if I don't ask you both uh, about Ben Barnes' recent revelation of <laughs> Don Connolly, a Texas ally, Reagan campaign ally, his involvement. Uh, in undermine in the undermining of uh, the Carter administration's efforts to resolve the Iranian hostage crisis, which um, you know drolled on in the waning days of the 1980 campaign, um, you know there are folks who say that this you know if this revelation was made at that time, this really could have changed the trajectory of history. Um, this could have resulted in a second Carter presidency, and then there are those who attribute, you know, they look, they point to other factors. Look, you had the rise in televangelism. You had the inflation, uh, the, the, um, the OPEC, the oil embargo. You had, you know, folks lining out for miles to get gas. So there were so many other factors that they point to to say, well, Carter still would have lost, even though it probably would have been a, he would have had a better chance. Um, you know, Carter had his, in my view, his Bay of Pigs moment, the victory has a thousand fathers, <laughs> but the feet is an orphan moment on April 25th, 1980. Uh, of course, that's when he makes a televised address to update the country um, about the 52 American hostages at the American embassy in Tehran. The day before Carter's speech, U.S. Army Special Forces attempted to rescue them, but the mission failed. Eight U.S. servicemen died in a helicopter crash. Carter took responsibility and vowed not to give up on the captive. Americans, of course, um, this only hurt him and his image uh, more as you know, the public began to look at him as not capable, um, not able, as we were discussing earlier, to handle this kind of situation. Do you think that if this revelation was made earlier, this would have changed the trajectory of American history? I'm gonna give you a one word answer, but Jonathan's done the research and writing on this. The answer to your question is yes, in my view. Uh, I, think, I think if the hostages had been released uh, before the election, uh, I, I think we, I think we would have won. And, uh, 
because it was, even with everything you said, all the baggage that we had, we were running neck and neck, basically, uh, up until the last weekend of the campaign. But Jonathan, you, you're, you've done the research and writing. Mine's just the view of a partisan hack who was involved with the campaign. <laughs> So um, I, I think my answer is maybe. Um, I know that sounds mealy-mouthed. Um, first, the um, the uh, Ben Barnes story, um, which was that William Casey, who was Ronald Reagan's campaign manager, asked former Governor John Connolly and his lieutenant governor, Ben Barnes, to go to the Middle East and to urge Middle Eastern leaders to contact Tehran and tell them to not release the hostages until after the election, thereby helping Reagan. Um, that was a, you know, confirmation of a multi-pronged plot by Casey. I don't think that part of the plot actually had any impact on anything because um, certainly Anwar Sadat did not, and the president of Egypt did not contact the Ayatollah on behalf of Reagan, and I don't believe anybody else did either. Uh, so, but what it was um, more evidence of is that there was a plot by the Reaganites to convince the Iranians to uh, delay the release of the hostages. Um, so that's established. That's not a conspiracy theory anymore. And, and uh, at less is urging, I and um, three others who have written about Jimmy Carter, we wrote an article in, in the New Republic recently about the October surprise case, and we laid out why this part of it is now established fact and not a conspiracy theory. We don't know for sure that the Iranians agreed to a deal. We know there was an effort for a deal. We don't know that they agreed to it. Um, but even if um, they had uh, you know, rejected the Reaganites and let the hostages out, or if the hostages had been rescued in April by uh, the um, Delta Force um, American commandos who you know, were trying to rescue them and, and ended up crashing in the desert. Uh, even if the hostages had come home, I, I'm not sure that Carter could have been reelected with double-digit interest rates and double-digit inflation. Think about that for a second. Like we're all upset with interest rates having gone up recently. Imagine if they were 15%. They went as high as 19% under under Jimmy Carter. But even that wasn't determinative. And I always go back to this fishing, uh, this fishing lodge where um, Jimmy Carter liked to go. And one year uh, after Carter was president, um, Paul Volcker, who was still chair of the Fed at that point, uh, went to this fishing lodge. And um, Volcker told me a story uh, not long before he died, um, where he said that he went up to Carter and said, um, I'm sorry if what I did cost you the presidency, because he jacked up interest rates right before an election. It's not a very good way to get reelected. And um, Carter smiled and said, Paul, there were many factors. 
And I think that that is true, that even if the hostages were the main factor, there was Ted Kennedy's challenge, which led to a, a kind of a bitter, embittered and divided Democratic Party. Uh, there was uh, not just high inflation, and but high interest rates and unemployment earlier in the year hadn't been such great shakes either. And, and you had um, um, real opposition from people like Ed Koch, the mayor of New York. Um, so I think if the hostages had come home in April when the hostage rescue mission took place, that Carter would have gone up in the polls in April and May, and then, you know, everybody would have pocketed the fact that the hostages were home and they wouldn't have credited it to Carter's account. And my reason I think that is I look at um, Barack Obama's poll numbers after um, they killed bin Laden, his numbers went up. And then they, you know, six weeks later, they reverted to uh, what they had been. And he had to run a very aggressive campaign and catch some breaks to get reelected. And he was in significantly better shape on the economy than um, than Jimmy Carter was. So, you know, uh, these these things are usually multi-causal, and that's what I I'm left with in this case too. I think the uh, Jonathan's right about if it had happened in April by June, numbers probably would have gone back to their sort of static level, right? I think if it had been a week or ten days before the election. Uh, and there'd been all the celebrations of homecoming and, and whatnot. I think that. You know, key in the Reagan campaign. Uh, but when I asked too, if he, if he agreed with my assessment that uh, a week or 10 days out, Carter would have won, and Stu said, I agree with you. He thinks Carter would have won. Now, who knows, right? I mean, there's no way of knowing for sure. Uh, but uh, Yeah, I think I think you make a good point. I think the timing is important in that if they'd had that victory parade, you know, people remember the last thing that happens just before an election, and maybe they would have forgotten about the economy, and they would have, you know, Carter would have uh, won narrowly. But it's, it's hard. When there's a landslide, it's it's hard, you know, and the, I think it may be that the polls showing it close were not really very accurate if you look at the final result. Um, but also remember, and, and this is this is pertinent to today, uh, we, first of all, I want to go back to, let's hope that Biden doesn't, I'm, I'm with Jonathan, I, I wish, I wish, I think Biden's age is a factor and I wish there was somebody else to be the standard bearer, but there isn't. And so uh, the challenge that he faces is from Robert Kennedy Jr., who is not coming at him from the left. I don't know exactly what his ideology is, but it, he's got a record now of having flirted with right-wing conspiracies and whatnot. I don't, I don't, you know, it's not helpful. Uh, there's the, the risk of a third party. And in 1980, we had John Anderson. Now, Anderson ended up probably not costing us any one state, but his presence in the race was a factor we had to weigh throughout because uh, 
for a long time, the polls showed that he, his support was coming at our expense. And some of it went, was because of disaffected Kennedy people and so forth. So there was a lot going on. If if the hostages had been released, let's say a week or 10 days before, I believe we would have won. But it would have been a squeaker. It would have been close. Uh, but it, you know, uh, and if and, and if we had lost, it wouldn't have been by the margin that we ended up losing by. I mean, I just think that's that's for sure, and that would have had a big effect on um, the future of politics because, you know, it was Reagan's margin that led everybody to think there was this yeah, mammoth right. shift that had taken place. So. Right. so the last question I want to ask uh, before I let you both go is, you know, do you see any parallels in the current political landscape? Um, of you know the upcoming 2024 Republican primary process and that of the crowded Democratic primary of 1976 um, or maybe even the general election season you know the, the general election season of 19 of, of 2024 which is going to be uh, in which Biden is seeking re-election just like Carter's seeking re-election um, and that of the 1980 election um, do you see any parallels and, and also in a light with the fact that this is going to be the first election since um, 1968, where you don't have the protections of Roe versus Wade, the, the, you have North Carolina uh, legislature overturning a veto that the Democratic governor Roy Cooper um, imposed on a, a, a law that would restrict abortion, I think, uh, to 12 weeks. Um, so there's there are folks like Pence who are going to be announcing soon, or Tim Scott. Uh, folks who are already in the race, like Nikki Haley, um, who have embraced a kind of conservative populist message as it pertains to issues like abortion. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It's going to be a plus for the Democrat, Joe Biden, or somebody else uh, in a general election. It, the abortion issue is a disaster for Republicans because the country's not with them on it. The country is strongly opposed to a six-week ban and I think and that's why Trump is running away from a six-week ban as fast as he can and bobbing and weaving on abortion because he knows in a general election it's a disaster and I think DeSantis if he were to win the nomination he's cooked his own goose by letting his legislature pass a six-week ban and then signing it Pence and the others are irrelevant because they're not going to get the Republican nomination so they're not even worth talking about really and um, there's like no support for him in the Republican Party. Tim Scott could conceivably surprise people. Um, I, I look at him as a somebody to keep my eye on um, because he he could emerge and he would he could be a very formidable candidate in a general election. Um, but uh, you know the odds. Uh, are you know with the front runner Trump and um, I think what's most comparable to these other elections is the idea of somebody like Bobby Kennedy um, just weakening Biden, not beating him, but weakening him by doing better than expected yeah. in some Democratic primaries, and then acting a little bit like Kennedy did um, in 1980, where he 
technically endorses Biden after he wins the nomination, but doesn't really do so in a convincing way and basically signals to his people. And remember, even even if it's just five percent who voted for for Bobby Kennedy in the in the primaries, if he signals to his people, ah, stay home. Biden's not really any better than Trump. Stay home. That could get that could give the election to Trump in the same way that, you know, uh, it I, I think Reagan's rather tepid endorsement of President Ford in 1976, a certain number of Republicans went, eh, I'm a, I'm a conservative Republican. I don't really like uh, President Ford. I think I'll stay home. And Carter won a, a very close election. So these seemingly marginal candidates can have an outsized impact in a campaign where they can be decided by less than one percentage point. And that happened in 80 with uh, uh, Ted Kennedy's not only tepid endorsement, but, uh, y- you know, John Anderson picks Pat Lucy to be his vice president. Lucy had campaigned for Kennedy. Uh, they, uh, I think, and I said, I, I think a lot of disaffected Ted Kennedy people went to John Anderson. I will tell you, I want to go back. I think it's really risky trying to draw too many parallels between any any campaign and past campaigns. I mean, there's so many differences, personalities, dynamics, issues, and so forth. There are specific examples, like Jonathan just said, of, of uh, individual candidates who, who may, whose supporters then may stay home or drift away. But in terms of the overall, cam- I just don't see too many general parallels. In 1980, when Ted Kennedy, you remember he conceded at the New York convention, but the, his concession speech was not a concession speech. It was a rallying right, uh, for his cause and, and so forth. Now, after that convention, and I had moved from the DNC over back to the campaign to become a acting campaign manager, which really was being the field director, but uh, I got a call from Carl Wagner, who was an old friend and, a, and had it was a Kennedy guy, uh, worked for Ted Kennedy and one of his key people in charge of his field operation, political operation. And Carl called me and said, hey, Les, your guy won, our guy lost. Paul Tully and I want to come over, another Kennedy guy, want to come over and talk to you and find out what we can do to help in the general election. Now, what's notable about that is that that was more the exception than the rule, uh, but they did help. Uh, Kennedy sort of campaigned for us in the waning days of the campaign down the Rio Grande Valley and a couple other places, but his heart wasn't in it, uh, and that was clear. So I wanted to um, throw in one thing from what we were talking about uh, a while back, because I, I looked it up uh, while we're talking in my book, um, you know, to m- make um, the the Kennedy Carter um, feud on health care even more poignant, in June of 1979, when Carter finally came forward in a belated way with uh, his proposal, 
It was supported by both Russell Long and Al Allman, the chairs of the relevant committees in the House and Senate, and by Congressman James Corman, who was Kennedy's House counterpart on his very liberal bill and a real liberal on health care, and by the labor unions and all of the relevant uh, players supported Carter's bill. And if Kennedy had just responded with, you know, sullen silence because, uh, you know, he didn't like it, it, w it would have been okay. The bill would have passed. But instead, he denounced Carter's bill and that killed it. So as much blame as Carter bears for not managing his relationship with Kennedy properly, I think Kennedy bears more blame for blowing up what uh, would have been a bill that was in many ways very similar to Obamacare, except we would have had it 30, you know, 30 plus years earlier. And um, so, you know, the um, sometimes, you know, you see the news from Washington, oh, a bill doesn't go through and you go, okay, well, what else is new? How did the Knicks do last night? You know, and you don't realize that um, these failures of politicians to get along can have huge consequences. And let's hope we don't find that out from the debt ceiling fight that's going on right now. Yeah. Well, Mr. Alter, Mr. Francis, thank you so much for what you brought to the table. I thoroughly enjoyed this in-depth discussion about the Carter presidency and, and, and also through the lens of, um, you know, current political events in 2023. So um, thank you all so much for what you brought to the table. With that being said, this concludes episode 108 of the Political Mike Podcast. Thank you all so much. Hi, it's Mike Taylor, the host of the Political Mike Podcast. If you like what you heard tonight, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I also want to ask you to please follow along on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Amazon Music. You can also follow along and keep up with the conversation through our Telegram channel. Follow us on Twitter at, at ThePolyMike, and follow us on Instagram. Thank you so much, and no matter what part of the political spectrum that you fall on, I want to encourage you to stay engaged, stay a part of the conversation, and stay informed. Thank you.